Welcome to All Places Together, a place where stories are shared. Stories about life before us, stories about what happens between us, and stories that have yet to bloom. Here we believe that our stories are connected to one another and rooted in God's radical love for diverse creation. Wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, take a deep breath. Here is a story for you, a story called Building Something New. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Elle Dowd to All Places Together. Elle uses pronouns like she and her and is an author, activist, and candidate for ministry in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Being a candidate at this point in her life means that she's approved to be a pastor, but has not yet formally accepted a call and been ordained. Elle has done incredible work with a variety of racial justice and gender justice organizations. And her first book, Baptized in Tear Gas, releases this week, which is really exciting. She is a mother to two children from Sierra Leone and is always on the quest for the best brunch in all of Chicago. Welcome to All Places Together, Elle. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. Wonderful. So, the intro just kind of begs the question, what's your favorite brunch in Chicago so far? <laughs> There's so many good ones and like the vibes are so different, but um, I'll say today, the one that I'm thinking about is Parlor Pizza. They Ooh. have all of these really good different kinds of pizzas, including breakfast pizzas, and they have an awesome Bloody Mary bar if you're into that. If you're into Bloody Marys with a lot of snacks, even one of my children who is not of age, so does not have real Bloody Marys, well, we try, we try to talk the server into letting her go up there and have minus the alcohol, just like the snacks, right? Like all the skewers of like cheeses and olives and stuff. So yeah, parlor. Wonderful. All right, Chicago listeners, take an adventure and let us know what you think. Yes. So where is your home and what makes it special? Well, I think um, there's a lot that makes it special, but a thing that makes it sort of unique and is the the special part of our home is that I live uh, in a suburb of Chicago, but that's not what makes it special. What makes it special is that I live with my whole family. So me, my spouse, Adam, my two children who are teenagers, Alice and Jessica, but we also live with my sister and her family. So like my sister, her spouse, her toddler, who is my nephew, and then like both of our dogs and we have like a goldfish. So we're like two full family sets in one house together. And that has just been really, really fun and special, especially during the pandemic because I really missed my nephew a lot in the times that I couldn't see him. And now I get to see him in the day to day and just like all the ways that he's growing and changing. And my teenagers also get to like help out and have kind of like an, an honorary younger sibling in their cousin who's at home. That's so neat. That's got just that's just got to be so wonderful to have that level of support with your parenting and how you aunt and are able to have that relationship with your sister. I think that's wonderful. It's like a little commune, right? Like every yes. Sunday we have a family meeting and we all have different jobs. Like on the, during family meetings, we talk about like dinners. Usually I cook dinners for the week. If I'm super busy, maybe my spouse will, but I'll like go over the menu and then we talk about chores and then we talk about like, how can we, we ask the question, how can we make this week like better for you? Right. And then wow. we can bring up any grievances or stuff that comes up, you know, when you live together, there's always like somebody who's, I don't know, slamming a door at night or something. And you can bring up any grievances, but you can also say like, oh, I actually have this big doctor's appointment coming and I'm kind of nervous. So maybe I could use some extra support or whatever. So it's been really cool. That's neat. Was that a plan before the pandemic or is that something that came to be during the pandemic? It was more like a thing where we maybe for a long time sort of half joking, not joking. We're like, we should all just live together. We should all just live together. <laughs> and when my sister got married, she lived in Miami with her spouse and then as his job changed and he was able to choose a little bit more where to live, that's when they moved to the suburbs 
of Chicago because we were in Chicago. So they kind of moved to be close to us. Cool. And then I guess it wasn't close enough because <laughs> we'd go visit almost every week. But then during the pandemic, uh, my, our housing, like our building that we were living in, my family was sold. And so at the same time, their lease was up and we were kind of like, should we just do it? And so we did. That's wonderful. What a gift to be able to see your nephew every day. Mine lives yes. hours away. And oh. yeah, so that's just, How old is he? Uh, he is going to be 10. And then I have his little sister, my niece, is going to be four this month, actually. Oh, so wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Aunt life is a great life. <laughs> It's so fun. And our family is uh, multilingual too, because my sister's spouse is from Spain. So the toddler also speaks, you know, English and Spanish. And then my children are from Sierra Leone. So we like have all of these different traditions, right? Like we have like Spanish traditions around holidays and then we incorporate Sierra Leonean stuff. And then my family of origin is Italian. So some of that stuff comes up too. So it's just like really fun over here. That's amazing. That sounds yes. like a lot of fun. It's so much fun. Great, great food. And it sounds like really like heartfelt and caring conversations, even around the tough stuff and yes. just fun. Yeah. Yes. It does sound like a really special place to call home. Yeah. And just like, you know, it's, it reminds me of the way that I think we're meant to live. Obviously, maybe not everyone's like meant to live with their sister, right? But we're not meant to feel so isolated and alone. We're, we're meant to be able to rely on each other. It's not normal for us to try to raise children where there's just like two adults, both of whom are usually trying to work or, or even, you know, even with only one parent working or whatever, that situation is just like not super feasible in our society and the expectation is so high and it's just so much easier. You know, many hands make light work. There's definitely more chaos, yes. but when people come and visit, cause you know, my cousin came and visited recently from Arizona and she's very beloved and she's welcome here anytime if she's listening. Hi, Nicole. <laughs> but, um, like I, she had fun, right? Like it's like, it's chaos, but like, it's very wholesome. I don't know. It's, it's a good time. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. So this is a big week for you. Your first book is coming out um, on the on the 10th. How are you feeling about that? I have a lot of feel feelings about it. Even when I was writing it, even deciding to write it, I had a lot of feelings. I first of all, I'm a person with a lot of feelings in general, but I'm here for that. Yes. When I was deciding to write it, you know, I have I had a lot of inner conflict and tension about writing a book about abolition, about the Ferguson uprising from my perspective as a white woman, right? There's kind of like the pros and cons of white people talking to other white people, but also at the same time, white people take up a lot of space in anti-racist movements. And so I had a lot of tension and feelings about writing the book in the first place, which have not been resolved. Like I just am mm. like learning to live with that. And I'm, you know, trying to mitigate some of those ethical concerns, for example, by redistributing the proceeds from the book that I would make to the black activists who taught me, but that tension's still there. Sure. It doesn't erase that. Yes, exactly. So, and then of course, you know, writing it, you're reliving these experiences. And honestly, a lot of the book is about mistakes that I made or things that I used to believe that I no longer believe anymore. And so some of it was like kind of embarrassing to dwell in. Some of it was pretty traumatic to relive. And that's, you know, me, even with so much privilege, there was like a lot of really hard stuff with the tear gas and the rubber bullets and the sound cannons. And so reliving all of that was hard. But now it's this weird, like, hurry up and wait, you write this book. But then there's this, all, this whole process of like, it goes through the publishing process. So it's kind of like, in my head, this book has been out forever because I finished writing it over, about a year ago. Oh, wow. But nobody else has read it yet, <laughs> you know? So um, as people are starting to read it, it, it does feel vulnerable. And I'm just trying to remind myself that it's an imperfect offering and nothing, you know, would be good enough to speak to the experiences that I had there and the people that I met. But it's like, it's the little bit that I'm trying to offer up and hopefully to be strategic and moving us all forward. That level of, of vulnerability, that is so intense. I just, I, I've thought a lot about, um, and how I've grown over the podcast and had conversations with those are my inner circle of like, 
what level of vulnerability do I share now that um, this is a much wider audience than what it was when I was a parish pastor? And so yeah. I know that to, to decide what to share and to what level and to be vulnerable and maybe what you're not as proud of, that's such hard work. And my editor was amazing. I worked with Lisa at Broadleaf and she's also the editor that works with like Pastor Lenny Duncan and Pastor Emmy Kickler. So like, you know, I was in really good hands and she just held my story very gently and was very encouraging when I would, you know, think to myself, maybe I should just not do, <laughs> maybe I should not do this. Maybe I should just like, you know, delete the entire manuscript or something. And she was like, nope, keep going. You can do this. And, and she was very, very supportive and helpful and gave a lot of great feedback. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I know I am so excited to read it and I know lots of other people are. And I think my first question really is if you could kind of help me with a little bit of a vocab lesson. Um, I, when I think of what it means to be an abolitionist and what I've learned in my life thus far, I think about the civil war and slavery and we don't have that type of chattel slavery anymore in the United States. And so uh, can you help me and everyone else understand kind of what it means when you say that you're an abolitionist? Yeah. So abolition in its current movement form, you know, first of all, of course, like anything else, there's like various definitions and different communities and contexts will sort of define things a little bit differently. So this is not at all like a universal explanation or anything. But when we talk about abolition in its current form and the current movement, we're talking about the abolition of the carceral state. And what I mean by that is an abolition of prisons and policing. And I say the carceral state as opposed to maybe the criminal justice system, right? Because we are, as abolitionists, always questioning, like, what does it mean to be a criminal and who gets to decide that and what's oh. criminalized and what's not? And so I use carceral system um, because it really is more of a punishment system. It's not actually about justice. It's not actually about reducing harm. And so abolition seeks to end prisons and policing. But even more than that, abolition seeks to build something new. So some of the Mm. architects of the abolition movement for decades and decades have been Black women, Black feminists, many of whom are survivors of violent crime themselves. And um, some of those architects are like Dr. Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And both of them in, in, in different ways have said that abolition is more about presence than absence, right? It's about, it's primarily a a positive strategy, not a negative strategy. We hear the word abolition and we think of getting rid of something. And it is, it's about getting rid of like prisons and policing, but we also are about building something, right? And Mm. the idea is to build the sort of world where everyone has what they need, because we know that that is what really gets at the root cause of harm or crime, right? Crime is usually a result of people not having the things that they need. And so abolition seeks to really get at those root causes with things like housing, education, healthcare, mental health care, all of those things. And when things do go wrong and harm happens because we're humans and community and that's just part of it, abolition seeks other strategies that are less about punishment and more about transformation. In our really hyper individualistic white Western capitalist society, when something bad happens, we tend to really zoom in on the individual and say, you did something bad. You're bad. You deserve to be punished. Mm. And what abolition does instead is it zooms out. It keeps that original accountability with the person who caused harm, but it zooms out to the wider picture and said, why did this happen? How did this happen? How did we as a community allow this to happen? What was missing that made this person make this choice? And how can we not only hold them accountable, we can all be accountable, not only for limiting harm, but also be accountable to repair harm that has been caused. That is such a more thorough and helpful definition than what I came in with. I'm already learning. This is wonderful. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of really great resources. And the first little bit of my book even just like lists some authors right off the bat. So sure, you can you'll be able to like in the preface, you'll be able to build a reading list from that if you want. I love it. Yes, I always have a reading list going. It's on my phone and I get in trouble with the library when I get too many books at once. And it's like a constant <laughs> yes. stress of when are these due? Can I renew them again? Right, um, yes. So if abolition is one side of the spectrum um, to approaching the prison industrial system, carceral state. And the other side of the spectrum is perhaps something like really being pro-police and pro-prison. Is there something in the middle of like trying to fix the system we have going is, or is it an either or? That's a really great question. And one of the reasons that I was transformed and wrote this book was because I really used to believe sort of in that middle space that there was something possible as far as reform goes, right? I sort of thought, I really believed, we'll say like in 2014, before um, when I was first entering into the Ferguson uprising and before I had learned a lot about abolition, I really thought, there is a systemic problem maybe, but, you know, we can reform this. We can do anti-bias training. We can get more cameras. We can get, um, I don't know, more community policing, right? Some of these really popular reforms. And what I learned is that reforms sound really good because it sounds like, oh, we're not trying to just totally build something from scratch here. We are trying to kind of like fix things. Um, but the reason that reforms don't work is for reforms to work, we have to be sort of getting back to an original intention that is honorable or good or helpful. And the history of policing in the United States has always been about protecting property, um, particularly the history is rooted in catching escaped enslaved people, busting unions in the North. Yes. And so there isn't some sort of like wholesome place to get back to with reform, which is why what we've seen is that reforms have failed. The problem with reforms is they're not even neutral, right? They're not even just sort of not moving us forward. Many times reforms cause more harm. And the mm. reason is when we do reform, like for example, when we invest in more anti-bias training for police, what we do is we are adding a bigger budget, which means expanding the reach of a system that is actively harming people. Same with the body cams, right? Like, let's get more body cams on police. Sure. Again, we end up really investing money into this system that we already know is not trustworthy, that we already know is causing harm. And instead of limiting the harm by limiting the power and limiting the reach, we're putting more money. And in the case of of body cams, it's particularly uh, harmful because historically body cameras have not served to protect the public. They're used by the police to survey people. So for example, if we think about the counterintelligence programs that disrupted the civil rights movement and the black power movements of the 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond, the police were targeting black activists and then assassinating them, right? And trying to infiltrate movements and break them up. Um, in cooperation with the FBI. And that has not stopped. So when we do things like put more surveillance in the hands of the police, you'll notice police tend to turn their body cams off. And that police are caught on camera killing people without any level of accountability. And the times that we do have video that has been helpful, it's almost always coming from the hands of a civilian, right? A scared teenage girl mm. recording on her phone. Those are the videos that end up bringing more awareness to light and sometimes bringing a certain level of, you know, criminal prosecution. But when we have more money invested in things like cameras, the state will use that power, that money to reinforce itself. And so the more that we just invest in this system, we're like building this Frankenstein monster that continues mm. to cause more and more harm. Yeah. I'm just processing everything that you're saying. It's just bringing together so many different things, threads of, of different things that I've been reading and listening to. You know, in preparing for today's conversation, I was trying to think back to what I had read in A New Jim Crow. And yes. when I was looking at it on Wikipedia, I was like, this is published in 2010. Yeah. Like, this is so old now. Like, it's an important 
piece of the story, but so much has happened since then um, that what you're sharing is just connecting so many things. And I, I also just want to say, as you were saying, to reform something means to get back, you know, to something or not to reform, but like this hope of reforming and returning back to when it was like wholesome in the value. I I had learned that the police, the history of the police was in protecting um, the property of primarily white enslavers in the South. And my stomach just dropped. It's like, oh, yeah. this wasn't, this isn't a good history. Like these aren't good roots. And I think a lot of the problem, you know, with our carceral system is that we have all of these narratives that are really kind of romantic narratives that aren't rooted in reality, right? We have these narratives of bad guys running in and like saving innocent people when in the reality, most of what police do is not interrupting crime when it happens. In fact, that is very rare. Even after some sort of harm happens, oftentimes police aren't able to or they choose not to do much about whatever harm has been caused. And so we have these like romantic ideas of the way that the system is already working. And a lot of those romantic ideas are possible because we're removed from the reality because of a certain level of privilege, right? I grew Mm. up as a white girl in the burbs. I was taught if I have problem, I call the police. They're going to come help me. That is not everyone's experience. And so there are people who are already on micro levels, negotiating sort of levels of, of abolition and abolitionist practice in their own spaces. I will say that abolition is not about like us going to bed tonight and there is not abolition. And then we wake up tomorrow and we just fling open the jail doors and there's abolition and we just shrug and hope everything's fine. Right. Like, so there is this sort of like process that communities go through to get closer and closer to a more abolitionist ideal, but we're we're always keeping abolition in the forefront. So for example, right now I'm working on a campaign with an organization I organized with here in Chicago known as Soul, Southsiders Organized for Unity and Liberation. And we're doing a campaign right now that's called Act CCJ, which is about the way that trans people are treated in the Cook County Jail. And we're working alongside Brave Space Alliance, which is a Black-led, uh, trans-led, LGBTQI plus center on the South Side here in Chicago. And so we're working on this project, right? Like how are trans people being treated at the Cook County Jail, how can we improve their lives? And so we're trying to make sure that in the short term, people are surviving, right? So we're not just going to be like, oh, well, abolition's the goal. So we, we, I guess, don't care about the harm that's happening right now. Um, and at the same time, any proposed demands that we have always have to be through the lens of abolition and leading us closer to abolition. So whether that is For example, um, making sure that trans people, while they're still incarcerated, are housed somewhere where they're safe. Mm. The ultimate goal is always, and they shouldn't be there at all, right? We should not have trans people incarcerated in the Cook County Jail because we shouldn't have anyone incarcerated in the Cook County Jail because it does not limit harm. It does not keep us safer. It perpetuates harm and it traumatizes people. So I wonder... I mean, you've already shared so much knowledge with me, with our listeners about what abolition looks like in the 21st century. And we also know that you are a candidate to become a pastor. And so I wonder if there's a story from scripture that really intersects and speaks to your call towards the work of abolition. There are so many pieces of scripture that really inform me as an abolitionist, but the one that is really coming to mind right now is the book of Luke chapter four, where Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. So I'll read a little bit of that starting at verse 14. Yeah, please do. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their religious centers, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into his synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim Freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The story goes on, too, that after Jesus read this piece of Isaiah, and after he sort of said, yeah, like this is what I'm all about, that people were so worked up about the things that he had said that they tried to drive him off a cliff. Yikes. And so this story really means a lot to me for several reasons. Sure. One of them is that frequently, you know, when Jesus is preaching here, he's quoting from his own spiritual ancestors, right? He's talking about Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah and actually all throughout scripture, First Testament, or some people call Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, all throughout scripture into the New Testament, we see a really consistent message of God setting people free, right? Captives being released, prisoners being set free. So we see this really consistent message. And so when Jesus is quoting Isaiah, he's really leaning into his own spiritual heritage as a Jewish person and as a person who like grew up on these scriptures. And the people and the heritage of the people who are there too, that for the most part, they are Jewish as well. Like none of this should be a surprise to them, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. And so as, you know, he's, he's reading this and he says, this is, this is like what I'm all about. Like, we're going to do this actually. People got really worked up. And I think about the ways that we read scripture now today, so often in our churches Mm. is we tend to really hyper-spiritualize everything and really depoliticize it. And what I mean by that is we read all of these things as if they're sort of like spiritual metaphors, right? Like, oh, God comes to save us from our sin. And when we die, we go to heaven. And that's what it's all about. That's the gospel. But Jesus is coming here saying, no, the gospel is also about, or maybe even more importantly, about release to the prisoners and people being healed and the poor having good news, right? Jesus is talking about the material reality of people in their physical lives here on earth. And the people at the time didn't think of this and listen to this and think, oh, that was a nice metaphor, right? They didn't say, they didn't listen to him hear about this prophet from, I'm going to say that again. They didn't listen to him read from the prophet Isaiah and think, oh, yes, God will release us from our spiritual prisons. Won't that be so nice, right? (laughs) They took it so seriously when he was like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Release to prisoners that they tried to drive him off a cliff. It was very, very, very real for them. And so I think it's really it really undermines the power of the gospel in our own time Mm. when we sort of turn these things into metaphors. I know God releases us from spiritual prisons, right? Or prisons um, that we can conceptualize in a lot of ways, right? But we also see in the gospels um, and, and also in Acts that God is releasing people from actual prison and jail. God is releasing people, you know, in the Hebrew Bible from captivity. And so we can take that seriously because... That is how seriously the original hearers were taking it. Well, and I think it's interesting, too. One of the things that Jesus is citing there from Isaiah is to bring healing to the blind or sight to the blind. And, you know, you can expand that to healing, you know, in whatever physical way different people might need that. And Jesus does that all throughout all four Gospels. He heals Mm -hmm. all kinds of people. And I think of today how fervently people pray for Jesus's healing it for their physical bodies in the here and now. So people don't yeah. really have necessarily a hard time taking like that line of what you read from Luke 4 seriously, right? Like I yes. have prayed for my own physical healing, for the physical healing of countless people that I know and more that I don't know as a pastor. So it's interesting that folks kind of even like pick and choose within that. It's like, Oh, the the healing is literal, but the freeing the captives or taking care of the oppressed or supplying the poor with what they need, like that's a metaphor. Right, right. And I think part of it is that we've really been taught to read that way on purpose, right? Mm. Like anytime we think of a way that we read and interact with scripture, we can ask ourselves a question like, who taught us to interpret this way and and who's benefiting from it? Because there are Mm. people who benefit 
from us, not believing that we're talking about an actual abolition here, right? Like there's people in power, particularly people, you know, who benefit from the carceral system in this country who are benefiting from the church propping up this idea that, you know, abolition is impossible and we'll never get there. And those of us who are Christians, who are people of faith, we can lean into our spiritual imagination here just the way Jesus did, just the way the prophets did and say, these things are possible. Like they're possible now. And, and we can be a part of that. We can be a part of that now, here and now in our own time, in our own place. We can help to bring that reality to fruition. We can be abolitionists. That just, I think, also points to two other points in the text where it says, where Jesus says, the favor, what's the line you have, if you still have it there in front of you, of yeah. the day of the Lord is here or the year of the Lord's favor? Yeah, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then also where it says that this has been fulfilled in your listening, mm-hmm. that this is something mm-hmm. that started with Jesus. And well, but even before Jesus, truth be told, right? But mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. continuing with Jesus and continues today that this is a literal thing that is happening. And is, correct me if I'm wrong, and you may not know the answer to this, but is the year of the Lord's favor, is that a direct reference to the year of Jubilee from the Hebrew scriptures? A lot of scholars would say yes, okay. right? So that's another reason that it's like, Wow, these people were <laughs> these people were riled up because that has real material implications, right? The the year of jubilee which is about canceling all these debts and ending, you know, a term of indentured servitude or slavery, like perhaps there are people there that would have been directly affected by this on on either end. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so we're talking about the ways that people's lives are really affected and that's why it's controversial. It was controversial for the original hearers. And it's also controversial now because there are people who benefit from a certain narrative about public safety, from a certain narrative about control that's really steeped in white supremacy and really steeped in punishment and not in transformation and not in ending harm. Yeah. I feel like it's important to note that like some of those healing narratives, especially for like theologians who are disabled or for other folks like can be really complicated and problematic. But one thing that sticks out to me is the way that in Jesus's healing narratives, which like we said, he does quite literally in his ministry in Jesus's healing narratives. It's also about restoring community, right? It's it's kind yes. of in this way, this transformative justice model where yes, there's the healing of the individual, which again is complex with the disability stuff, right? There's a lot of uh, theologians who really criticize that. But Jesus not only heals this individual, he also restores them back into community and relationship. And so it's the whole community that's transformed. And that's something that's, that's supposed to be true also when we're thinking about things like justice, right? Justice is not just about individuals or settling some kind of score. It's about the continual transformation of all of us. Yeah. No, each line within this whole this whole set of verses that you read could be, I mean, its own book, its own sermon, its own podcast for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder then what would be like a concrete step or something that someone wanted to, that could do today, that if we are believing and are wanting to move forward in our understanding of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 4, wanting to move forward to learn more about abolition or take a step towards bringing that reality into our communities today, what's like a first thing that someone could do to, to start that journey? One thing that I really wanted to do with the book is to support people with that, right? I think a lot of times, and this happens a lot in like church book clubs, we sort of get all these ideas and we we feel inspired and then we don't quite know what to do. So at the end of each chapter of Baptize in Tear Gas, there are discussion reflection questions and there's also action items. But even without reading the book, Wonderful. I would say like a first, yeah, yeah. It's like really written for, you know, church small groups or you know, community small groups or churches in general to do like a book study, right? Like the yeah. the, it, the book itself is like a, a fast read. Like you could, people are telling me, oh, I read it in a day. I read it in a couple of days. 
But the chapters are also, especially with these like discussion questions and action items are meant to be like dwelled in, right? Like as a community. So, so that's one thing, but I'll also say that, um, if you, if we were all even outside of the book, right. If we were all going to choose like a, a next step tomorrow, like how can I learn more about abolition or how can I practice this abolition and anti-racism, much like baptism are things that maybe we, we have a, a moment that we start that we're initiated in, hmm. but it's a lifelong journey in which we are continually recommitting ourselves. And our, our journey is only complete once our time here on earth has finished. And so one way that we can focus on starting in our own lives as abolitionists is through this concept that I first learned about through Adrienne Marie Brown and her book, Emergent Strategy. And this concept is called fractals. And so one of the things that her book does is talk about the way that nature can be our teachers and, and the created world all around us. We, we can learn lessons about liberation from the created world. And fractals exist all in nature. If you're a math person at all, you'll know that fractals are like repeating patterns that exist on various levels and sizes. I know the word. I know the word fractals from Frozen when Elsa sings frozen fractals all around. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Frozen fractals all around because there's a lot of fractals in um, snowflakes, right? Yes. That's a great example. So like on a snowflake, if you look at it sort of like on a microscope, right? You notice that on this tiny, tiny, tiny snowflake, There's like the snowflake unit itself, but almost like every little piece of a snowflake has like every little point that juts out is like its own little snowflake, right? Yeah, yeah. The the example that we get in Adrienne Marie Brown's book is the fern, right? The plant that's like a fern. Uh So you have like the fern leaves. And if you look at the leaf of a fern, it's like every little like mini leaf on that branch is like its own little mini baby fern, right? Right. I'm doing like a zigzag motion with my hand as if the listeners can see that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's like, there's these patterns that repeat on different levels. And we can think about that as well with abolition. The idea is the things that we practice on the small level reverberate Mm. into the large level, right? The tiny choices that we make echo in the cosmos. And so that's a big responsibility, but it's also really liberating because maybe tomorrow you don't know, like, I don't know, you can't wake up tomorrow and just like end prisons. Probably not. Right. Probably not. But, but we can practice and prepare for the year of the Lord's favor, for that day of liberation, for abolition. We can practice and prepare here and now in the ways that we practice on the small, tiny level and the ways that we practice with the people closest to us. Mm. So I use this example as a parent, right? I try to obviously very imperfectly incorporate abolitionist frameworks into my parenting. And what I mean by that is I don't punish my children. If, if someone makes a mistake, first of all, as a family, we all have a say together in what are the rules and the norms in our household. But if someone makes a mistake, instead of like, I don't know, taking their phones or grounding them or something, we have instead decided to come together and have a discussion about like, how did this happen? What support did you not get that you needed? Like, what made you feel like you couldn't come to me with this problem and for us to solve Mm. it together? And instead of punishment, which sort of pits us against each other, we really try to reconnect and be on the same team and be like, harm was caused or, you know, trust was damaged. How can we move forward together to repair this harm or make better choices in the future. And sometimes it means for me, like adjusting my expectations or that we change together the family expectations and rules, right? Um, and sometimes it means, obviously, as people are growing up and all of us, we're testing limits and boundaries and we're figuring these things out. And instead of then becoming an unsafe place to test those things out, I really try, my spouse and I really try to continue to, to create a space where it's like, yeah, we make mistakes and then we come together to fix them. So that's one example, right? Of, of something that we could do, which maybe even sounds, maybe that sounds harder than ending prisons. I know like that was definitely <laughs> not the way I was raised. And a lot of us were raised really differently and parented really differently. And, and, um, in a, for a variety of reasons, just culturally, that's not typically how people parent. But for me practicing, like, how can we practice liberation at home? How can I support my children? How can we have a relationship that's full of mutuality and respect 
where we're on the same team, when I practice that within my household, it strengthens that muscle so that hopefully Mm. one day when abolition comes, I'll be ready to do my part. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I imagine for a lot of people, if they're or for certain people who are maybe not so sure or still have more learning to do before they're maybe ready to claim the full title of being an abolitionist, to to think about how they parent or aunt or uncle or how they have that liberation in, in any of their relationships or the organizations that they're a part of in their congregations. You know, that's something that affects their everyday life, whereas maybe they don't realize that prisons are as maybe connected to them as they might think. Um, but in their everyday lived life to, to live out some of these principles may be more, even more motivating. Yeah. And a huge, huge part, you know, of abolition, which is why to me, it's so connected to my faith, because I think this is a huge part of, of Christianity at its best, right. Of ministry Mm. at its best, huge part of abolition. It's all about relationships It's about deeply knowing one another and caring for one another and providing for one another's needs, which like hopefully the church, you know, at its best wants to do that. And so abolition is also about getting to know your neighbor, right? Mm. So that you like have deep conversations about like, what do they want? What do they need? What are their dreams in life? What keeps them up at night? And just building these relationships in your community with your neighbors so that if you run into trouble, you have a way to take care of each other that doesn't involve, you know, perhaps the police, right? Like if you know your neighbor really well, I I had this example and there's various examples, right? But if say I know my neighbor really well and my neighbor, I notice is like speeding down our street and I'm like, I have kids, they play outside. Like this person's speeding. I don't feel okay with that. Right. In like our current system, we might just like call the police on them, right? And be like, sure, oh, you should, you should stake this out and like write them a ticket, right? This silver um, car, get them. Yeah, right. But like most likely that's not necessarily even going to stop the speeding, right? And it's sure. definitely not going to deepen your relationship, especially no. if, if they find out, you know, it you was call you. the police or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But what would possibly help is if, I went over to my neighbor who I have an established relationship with and said, Hey, I really noticed that you're really zooming down the street. And I have to tell you, I'm really afraid because like my children Mm. are here, you know, and maybe we could have that moment of vulnerability and possibly even find out like what's going on. Like, why, why are you speeding down the street? Right. Maybe she uh, has to get to daycare by 7:45 but then has to be at work by 8 and it's just like so tight and she's like really struggling to get out the door right maybe that's why she's speeding down the street in that case maybe we could figure out if there's someone in the neighborhood who could help with drop off or maybe we could figure out a way that like one of the older neighborhood teenagers could help with getting you know the her kids dressed in the morning getting them out yeah. the door right like what are ways that we can come together to solve the problems so that so and so is not so stressed rushing around speeding down the street and we're all safer. But even more than that, we're more connected. We're more loving. We're more meeting each other's needs. And that is what true safety is about. Yes. And then as you would live out that solution, you would continue to grow closer. You know, I can just see the teenager getting to know the younger child and that relationship. And I mean, just the possibilities that would really blossom from that. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, it's like, you know, it doesn't always like play out so neatly, right? Like it's very messy because relationships are messy. Yeah. But I I think too, sometimes we hear about abolition, it sounds like a fantasy. And what I've really learned, the more I learn more about our current system and the carceral system, the carceral state, is that the narratives that we have around the carceral state working are actually the fantasy. Mm. That over-policing leads to an increase in crime and an increase in harm, right? These these narratives that we have right now about this system helping is actually the fantasy. Abolition mm. deals in realities. Yeah. Goodness, Elle. I just, I am so excited to read your book again and to just be able to dig into these questions more and to continue to learn that I have learned so much during our conversation together, and I'm sure that our listeners will have learned too to, and just 
I'm very motivated, right, to try to learn more about this and how to bring this type of healing and wholeness into our world every day, which is what Jesus is all about. Yes. Yeah. So how can folks find you if they want to learn more from you, with you, alongside you? Yeah. So you can go to my website, which is ldowd.com, E-L-L-E-D-O-W-D.com. Um, or you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash ministry. Or you can also find me on Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. My handle there is HowNowBrownDowd. So like How Now Brown Cow, but Dowd at the end, right? We'll link it in the show notes too. <laughs> yes, so people can perfect. copy and paste. <laughs> um, and you can also find me on TikTok at Ministry. So I would love, I love to hear from TikToks, you. I love your TikToks, like oh, by the way. Like, goodness. Y'all need to go check out her uh, TikTok. She is doing the Lord's work. It is so like cringy. My teenagers, right, like put up some boundaries about what they're comfortable with me doing TikToks about, right? Like no embarrassing dancing, please, mom. And um, I told them like, listen, it's like a church themed TikTok. It's going to be a little cheesy. Like we just have to embrace it's corny. Like that's just how it is. But, you know, they help. They help keep me in line. But so, yeah, you can find me on socials. You can find me on my website. The Book baptized in tear gas from white moderate to abolitionist from broad broadleaf books is available pretty much anywhere you would normally buy books. You can order from Target Online or Google Play or Kindle, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. You can order directly from the publisher, or I always really encourage people to order from IndieBound or their local indie bookstore. Wonderful. Well, it is going on my list for this week and just best of luck this week. I'm sure that there'll be a lot of moving pieces, but I'm so excited to see what God brings forth for this week as this story is shared more broadly with the rest of the world. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear what you think and and you might, I'd love to hear what you think and your listeners too. So definitely would love to hear any of your feedback or thoughts and dreams that you have as you're reading. Yeah. Wonderful. We would love to be able to share those as we learn and grow too. Well, thank you so much for being with us at All Places Together. Yes. Thank you again for having me for the invitation. Prayer for Building God of liberation, you created each person in your image and gave us one another to live in community with. Yet we struggle to see one another through your eyes of love, compassion, and grace. Harm is multiplied rather than healed. Hunger spreads rather than being satisfied. Suffering is endured rather than relieved. So you sent your son, Jesus, to proclaim release to the captives, good news to those in poverty, recovery to those who suffer, and freedom to those who are oppressed. Build your justice in us so that we may join Jesus in this liberating work. Whether it's a small step or a big one, Help us to take a step in building your kingdom on earth today. Amen. Thank you for joining us at All Places Together. If you heard yourself or someone you know in these stories today, we hope you heard God too. I want to say a big thank you to all who have listened to today's podcast and any previous episodes too. We crossed 1,000 listens last week with episode 14. That means God's love has been shared over a thousand times already. This humbles me so deeply and encourages me so much. Thank you to you for each and every time you listened and each and every time you shared this with a friend. 
And if today was your first time listening or your 15th, don't forget that you can subscribe to All Places Together wherever you get your podcasts. We're in the process of creating a finale of this Favorite Places series that we spent most of the summer in. We are specifically looking for stories about spiritual experiences that have happened on interstates. If you have a story to tell, please send me an email at allplacestogether at gmail.com. That's A-L-L-P-L-A-C-E-S-T-O-G-H-E-T-E-R at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at allplacestogether. To continue to see All Places Together grow, you can give through our website. Scroll to the bottom where it says Give to All Places Together, and you'll be redirected to our giving platform. Each donation over $5 will receive one of our custom stickers. Also, there's going to be a special donor event at the end of August that will launch September's podcast series. If you want to be sure you're on the list and you haven't donated yet, I encourage you to do that today. As always, I want to say thank you to our mission partners, the Virginia Synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and people like you. We know that it can be hard to give financially. We celebrate all of the ways that you share the stories of all places together with the people in your life. Who is someone that you can process Elle's stories and teachings with? Send them the podcast today and take that first small step towards building a better world together. Until next time, remember that God is with you wherever, whoever, and however you are.